Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What. Today I've got Ben Scott Robinson on, who is the CEO and co-founder of the Small Robot Company. Hi, Ben. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Uh, yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Brilliant. It's, uh... Let's jump straight in then, Ben. And do you want to tell everyone a bit about what you do? Uh, yes, I am the uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Small Robot Company, which is a, a company set up to use robots and AI to um, revolutionize farming, basically, to bring a per plant view to the world's largest crops. And so a system that is both more profitable for farmers uh, and also much more environmentally sustainable. I love this. I've been really excited to get you on because I've, I just find this whole sort of world of evolving the world of agriculture really interesting because it's such a big issue for the world today. Um, and so how did this even sort of come about you getting involved in this world? Um, so getting involved in it, um, I suppose from a, from a technical and capability perspective, it's something that I've been working towards throughout my career. I, I've been involved in, in, in a fair few startups. Um, a couple of them have even been relatively successful. Um, and, uh, but always from a sort of technology perspective, but taking a, a user experience view. Um, and most recently, I was working for Ordnance Survey. I was lucky enough to be part of their sort of uh, digital innovation uh, team. Uh, and they were looking at some amazing things around uh, real-time mapping. So using perpetually, fly, um, uh, perpetually flying solar-powered drones and um, uh, blockchain-based sort of data analysis to, to create these live maps, like literally maps that are that are accurate down to minutes or, or wow. hours rather than months that um, Google will have. And so all this sort of stuff, you know, the sort of the AI, the, the, the robotics, the autonomous vehicles and all the rest of it was super exciting. Um, but then I just happened to be driving to work very early one day and was listening to um, Farming Today, uh, which is a radio program on, on Radio 4, sort of really early in the morning. And, um, and there was a, a, a guy on there who was talking at a conference called the Oxford Farming Conference. And um well actually there were two the first guy was from a big tractor company and they were talking about the future of farming and the big tractor company guy was basically saying it's about you know automation and bigger vehicles and you know an industrialized process and and all this sort of stuff and then the the chap who came on next who was a um uh, an academic from a, a university up in the in the northwest of england um and he came on and said well that's not true because you know, these bigger vehicles, these bigger tractors have been happening for the last 20 years. And yet, you know, no more efficiency, no greater yield, no greater, you know, profit has happened for farmers. And, you know, we've, we've hit a barrier with this. And, and actually, if you look at the damage that's being done by these vehicles and, the, you know, the lack of the loss of topsoil and, uh, and the sort of the variability caused by weather and stuff like this, you know, you're actually losing yields. It's starting to go down rather than go up. And so he argued for using sort of small, precise vehicles and, and, um, and getting a much more um, uh, granular understanding of the crop uh, and, you know, essentially sort of pointing to robotics. And that just blew me away. It was just mm. this, sort of com this sort of combination of, you know, uh, this sort of left field view that was so obvious. Uh, and, you know, this, this incumbent view that, you know, didn't really bear any sort of scrutiny when you started to delve into it. And that's kind of, you know, my mental sweet spot, I suppose. So what's the, I think you mentioned it earlier, you said a per plant view. What does that actually allow you to do as a farmer that these larger industrial vehicles don't really allow you to do? 
Um, so there are two parts, really. There's the precision and the size. Uh, I'll start with the precision. So when you are um, gathering, you know, information uh, to be at a level that you can see every single plant in the field. So for us, that means using our Tom robot to be able to drive through the fields and, and sort of take photos and do all sorts of stuff. And you can map those plants so you can sort of mark a plant and say it's in exactly this location and you can go back and you can find that plant you can watch that plant grow so it's not just <clears throat> this sort of snapshot of something you know of a field view it's actually being able to understand over time how a plant is reacting to its environment however that's however that's doing and that is just a completely different scale and level of understanding um, to uh, even you know, using um, uh, sort of computer vision on a, on a tractor or a robot to go out and see what's happening in the field right now. But if you take a step back from that, you see that, you know, the, the, the tractors that are in field now, they take a per field view. They take a 20 hectare field where there might be, you know, 15 million plants in there. And they assume that they're all the same. And they, you know, they all need the same amount of nutrients that, you know, they all need the same amount of protection from disease. They're all going to suffer from um, uh, issues with uh, pests at the same time. And, you know, it's clearly not true. And as soon as you start delving into it, even when you get down to sort of breaking it down to, you know, dividing a field up into, I don't know how the, the soils are varied across land, you see that there's massive variations to what those plants need. And when you get down to individual plants, you realise that you're using maybe 95% um, of the chemicals that you're using in that field are unnecessary. Or wow, as high as that? Yeah, yeah wow. or applied at the wrong time. And, you know, and all the rest of that stuff just gets washed away or sort of just sort of left to sit in the soil or, you know, over pollutes the plant. And there are huge implications for this in terms of, you know, the, the environment. So what's being washed into the water, the soils themselves, um, and, uh, and obviously the, the food that you eat. Um, so just a very quick example on that, um, glyphosate, which is um, a, a weed killer that's used and, and recently has, has gone, gone in the press because um, somebody has taken the, the company produces them to court for um, uh, it causing cancer. Yeah. And glyphosate is used on everything, right? And it's not just used to kill weeds, it's used to dry out crop plants um, at the end of their life. And, and this stuff is a desiccant, which means it, it literally sucks the moisture out of a cell. Um, and it's very effective at doing that, but it doesn't stop when it's done that on a plant. If you eat something which has glyphosate on it and hasn't been cleaned, it will do that to your stomach lining. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, this is like, and this is, this is what we eat, right? This is, yeah, this isn't like sort of a few things. This is, this is a lot of what we eat. Mm. So, you know, there, there's a huge consideration on our own health. There's a huge consideration on the environment. Uh, and obviously it's just massively wasteful. You know, it's like um, uh, it's like uh, washing one cup up by filling your bath. Um, so it's you know that, that level. So that's the sort of the precision level. And then if you take the vehicles that are doing it, you know, the whole system has been designed on the assumption that we need to be in the field for as little time as possible. So you build as big a machine as possible so you can rush through the fields because the person who's driving that vehicle they are the most uh, important thing and if you can reduce the time that they're in field then you're doing the right thing but what happens is you be, build vehicles which you know are too heavy really to go on soils you know they compact the soil they when they go over the soil they completely uh, annihilate what what's underneath them 
mm. um, because they and this compaction, you know, completely stops anything from growing, squishes out all the sort of the air and the water molecules in the soil, stops any, you know, um, uh, biological life from existing there. Um, and because they're so heavy, if the soils are even slightly wet, they can't go into the field. Which means that if you think about when you plant, you know, in, in, with winter wheat crops, you plant in October, you know, the time when it rains the most. And, yeah. you know, and you're going out in the field applying stuff in March when it's also raining the most. So, you know, the time is really limited. And the bigger the vehicles, the less time they can spend in fields. So the bigger the vehicle needs to be to cover the ground even faster. It's a crazy loop. Uh, it's a crazy loop which just, you know, uh, is totally self-defeating. So if you take a step back and go, well, what happens if you make something that doesn't need a person, that can be out in field all day, every day, if it needs to. Um, and, and so it can be smaller and it can be lighter. And because it's lighter, then it doesn't compact the soil. So it's not damaging the soil. It's not causing the same issues. Um, and by not damaging the soil, uh, it means that you have a stronger sort of soil um, uh, biome. So the plants grow much better. Um, and then when it rains, you know, they can go out and they're not sunk to axles in the mud because they just go across the, the mud in the same way that, that um, uh, a really, you know, sort of light um, quad would do or even you walking across the mud would do. Um, and so, you know, you have a completely reverse cycle uh, and that, you know, those two things combined that, you know, the removal of this um, incredibly heavy vehicle from the soil and all the damages that's, that that's doing to the soil. And then at the other end, the removal of all that waste, you know, it just is, a, is an absolute no-brainer in terms of, of, of changing the system. But because it's so different, and even five years ago, it would have been technically impossible to do. It's very hard for people to get their heads around. Wow, so even five years ago, this technology, you couldn't do it? Well, well I think so. Um, the thing that we, you know, the most important, the most fundamental thing to what we do is, is the GPS system that allows us to, to, to be accurate with where mm. we are. That level of uh, accuracy, sort of sub two centimeter accuracy that we need, um, five years ago cost 40,000 pounds, 50,000 pounds for a unit. Um, you know, we use a unit now which costs round about a thousand. Wow. We can get units which cost down to 200 pounds. Wow. Um, you know, the technology has just gone through the floor. The processing power, we, create, we collect uh, six to seven terabytes of data per robot per day, literally larger oh than our imagery at all sorts of different levels of a 20 hectare field. So it's 20 square kilometers, right? Wow. And that data to process that to convert that into picture from pictures into actual geospatially referenced points that says this is where this plant is uh, and then you can work out what type of plant it is and how well it's doing etc but just that moving from the photos to, to that point you know requires uh, a processing power which has only really come online with these powerful gpus um that you get for i mean initially for graphics processing but but now obviously for for bitcoin mining and stuff like that as well and that really has only been around for the last sort of five years at, at a cost that's that's acceptable um so yeah so those two pieces of technology in their own right you know but five years ago we could we could have built what we have now but instead of costing us you know sub a uh, hundred thousand pounds maybe sort of 50 60 pounds uh it would cost us half a million wow that is a huge in just five years. It's incredible. Um, well, but this data that you're you're creating for these farmers, obviously, that 
has huge, huge range of uses and allows them to, to perform analytics on their farms. Is that something that you guys are sort of looking into as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the so the, the interesting thing for farmers is not so much the data. It's more what you can do with it. Mm. And I think that, you know, this has really been a challenge within this marketplace. There have been people who have been collecting data and sort of precision agriculture uh, stuff for quite a long time. But what they've really, really struggled with is how to convert that into something which is valuable to the farmer. And, you know, and the challenge comes then to instead of having uh, a pretty map that shows you where, you know, a plant's growing well or a plant's not going well, to convert that into instructions for a, a, a sprayer to say, well, only spray this patch and not spray this patch. And that sort of um, changes where the value really, really lies for the farmer. Um, but the fascinating thing is once we built the Tom robot and once we got to the level where it was reliable and robust and we could gather the data and, you know, it could go out and sort of trundle around for, for eight hours a day and gather this sort of 20 hectares worth of data without causing any stress. Um, we were approached by some of the biggest ag companies in the world, seed companies, nutrient companies, you know, because they're saying, well, we don't have this, you know, in our, on our R&D sites, when we, we have all these test plots, we don't have a view of every plant in our test plot. Um, and, you know, when we're gathering data and finding out which variety of seed we should use, or um, even basics like how much of the nutrient that we make should be used on the plant. You know, the data that we collect is collected manually or semi-autonomously. Um, it's collected in a different way in different countries. Um, and it's, it's not empiric. So, you know, even for them, they are struggling to be able to use data properly, to be able to guide the decisions in um, some very fundamental stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a real eye opener to us how valuable this data is, both for the farmers in terms of, you know, the, 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 the cost of action or inaction, but also to the, to the big corporate companies as well. I mean, it's on on the face of it. This sounds incredible. It sounds like you know you're at the the beginning of a, of a huge change, um, or potentially you can make in this industry and in agriculture across the board. Um, it must be incredibly exciting to be going on this journey. Oh, it is. It is, and I think that. But but it is one of those things that, and I'll say this because my background in user experience design. You know, this technology, there, there are lots of people who are looking at this technology, who are looking to apply this sort of stuff and are developing technology to allow this sort of stuff to happen. But the key thing is really around finding the need and understanding, you know, where you're bringing something which is, is valuable to somebody. And I think understanding that, you know, once we triggered and sort of ticked off the boxes around understanding why this is important and how people will use it and how they will adopt it. Um, that for is, is, is almost a bigger deal because then it's not just something that's, you know, in an ivory tower in a lab somewhere, or it's a, you know, it's a, in a test bed in, in a, a university, but it's something that can actually be used by, you know, real farmers in field and, you know, have real demonstrable benefits for, um, for the environment, for, you know, sort of sequestering carbon, for um, uh, providing a, a field which is, 
you know, not a, a, a monoculture, not a green desert, but is actually, you know, uh, capable of supporting, you know, a, a, a biological um, ecosystem. And, and I think that that for us is the really exciting bit. It's the sort of the scale of the, the, the opportunity to deliver good, I guess. I mean, just listening to you, I'm, I'm getting excited. <laughs> it's an amazing, you know, opportunity you have right here. I mean, it's, it could lead to something potentially where, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but a farmer could essentially run a farm from some sort of dashboard and he just clicks the buttons and sends drones out and, and he's managing it with data opposed to having to, you know, trundle around fields and kind of, you know, a bit of a finger in the air kind of guesstimate as to how much, uh, you know, weed killer he needs to put on his farm and things like that. Yes, basically. I mean, I think that, that that's exactly the case, uh, but, but almost, almost beyond that. So in fact, Professor Simon Blackmore, the chap who introduced my business partner and I together and, and who came up with this sort of original idea around um, uh, sort of farming robots. So when I went up to see him, he expressed the sort of the vision of what he was talking about, which was, you know, he imagined a farmer being able to go out to his robot and press a button on the robot and the robot would just go out and do that job you know the job it was supposed to do all day and then come back at the end we would press a button again and then the robot would 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 go to sleep and you know clearly this is a huge change from the system that's there at the moment mm. but the first thing that struck my head is why are you pressing a button yeah yeah. You know, what the, the, the button is completely irrelevant. The button becomes a sort of skeuomorphic, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, transfer of control. The reality is that that sort of stuff, the, the mundane stuff, the, you know, what should be done on a, or is currently done on a tractor or a sprayer and going out in field is, is, is not where an owner or a manager of a multi-million pound business uh, should be. Mm. Right. They should be they should be thinking about how they can make their farm a better place, you know how they can uh, make it more sustainable, how they can make it more diverse, uh, how they can you know sort of um, bring greater value to it, you know how they can instead of growing wheat they could grow a wheat to then convert into flour to make biscuits or bread or gin, um, you know how they can. Uh, start bringing in regenerative practices how they can you know the, the stuff that you know big thinking stuff that is where a farmer should be and I think you know for for us to take away that drudgery the mundanity the the mm. stuff which requires no thought um, and replace um, the, the the time with thoughts about how to make the farm the business the environment better you know is is really a gift that we can give to the farmers I mean, this is all incredibly exciting. Um, but from our point of view, obviously, we like to talk about careers. Yeah. Now, having sort of thought about all this uh, massively, it would seem, where and what kind of skills do you think agriculture are going to need in this sort of coming revolution of robots and AI and data? Um, they're going to need the same skills uh, that the uh, autonomous car industry is going to need. They're going to need the same skills that um, the um, sort of quants in merchant banks provide. Um, they're going to need the same skills as digital uh, agencies are going to provide. They're going to require people who get sort of super passionate and geeky about how plants interact with each other or how bacteria interact with plants. You know, they it requires a different 
level of um, uh, skill, I suppose, but really broad. And I think this is the really exciting thing from it. So, so in our company, we have people who are uh, who used to work at Dyson. Uh, we have people who used to work at JCB. Uh, we have people who used to work at DeepMind. Um, we have people uh, who used to work for Virgin Galactic uh, wow. and who worked for Formula One. What a roster. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's amazing. And and it's for us, it's lovely because all these people approached us and said, look, I'm doing this thing, but it's not floating my boat anymore. You know, what you're doing is, you know, it's changing the world. How can we, how can we get involved? Mm. Um, but all these things, you know, all these skills, you know, can come into play. And and I think that, you know, the fantastic thing is because it's such a new space and, and this sort of harks back a little bit to, to the way my career has gone, that because it's a new space, you don't need to come in with a PhD. You don't need to come in with like a huge amount of experience and 20 years of building farming robots before because nobody has that. Yeah, nobody can say, oh, yeah, I've done this before with a company. It's a brilliant sort of time where people can come in and go, well, these are my ideas. This is where I make it work. Here's some proof points. Here's, you know, here's how I've put something into play on my own or how I've done something that's very similar in this industry. And I want to bring it into this because I think it's a really cool thing to do. Mm. Um, and and that means that it can be a massive confluence of skills, massive diversity of backgrounds of, you know, of all sorts of reasons, which is which is really, really exciting. Um, so two other areas, for example, that we've really realized that we just didn't think about. So one was around business planning and business strategy. Mm. Um, you know, there's not really been any thought, consistent, coherent thought into how a farm business can you know properly strategically diversify mm -hmm. that's that's not that's not a course that's not a you know that's not a thing that's something that people learn and pick up and because they're curious and they want to do it and you know farm management doesn't include you know all that innovation or all that diversification or all that sort of stuff farm management is about how to run a farm to produce one or two or three crops um, and the other one is around service design so we build you know, what we do is a service. The robots are part of a service. And that service includes software, the data, the AI, the robots, but also the people, you know, the logistics, the, you know, getting all that sort of stuff together. And, and in many ways, it's very similar to the way that, I don't know, that DHL works, for mm. example, you know, in that you have this sort of confluence of technology and people that do this incredible thing, or the way that Amazon works. Um, and, and I think that understanding how to plan and structure and make that work in a really smooth and effective way is a new is a new industry in its own right definitely and i guess we we tend to ask about you know what kind of personality traits does somebody need to to go into this industry but from what you've said i mean it's going to take a whole different raft of people to 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 make this industry and grow it yeah, yeah, completely. Um, so um, Sam, uh, my business partner, is um, very keen and has been since we first started working on a system called Colby A, uh, which is a, uh, a sort of cognitive um, analysis system, I suppose, that allows mm -hmm. you to understand the sort of things that you enjoy doing most. And that's not subjects, but that's, you know, do you enjoy... The sort of the structural or the management or the organization side do you enjoy coming up with new ideas do you enjoy crafting and making something tangible and real that sort of thing and we've applied that heavily across the business because because we require this sort of massive 
variation in people. You know, we need people to be able to come up with crazy new stuff that nobody's ever thought of, but then we also need people to deliver it and they are not the same people, right? Mm. Um, and then similarly, we need, you know, structure and organization and process, but we've got to be super careful about not overloading ourselves with that because otherwise it becomes a quagmire to try and deliver something. And, and getting that balance right between people is, is absolutely fascinating. You're the second CEO that we've had in this podcast from sort of emerging industries or people trying to change industries that have said exactly that. And it's so refreshing to hear that actually you're looking at the people you're employing and instead of going, trying to fit, you know, a square into a triangle hole, you're actually trying to look at the person and go, right, their skill sets are actually this. So we're going to build their job role around those skill sets, which just makes so much more sense. Yeah, precisely. And um, aligning, you know, when we have groups of people, you know, how do we align those teams to be, uh, those groups of people to be uh, teams that work really well together, or in some cases, conflict, mm. you know, to be able to, to, to put in uh, dissonance, um, so, that the, so that you get these sort of challenging environments where new ideas come out of, um, where you wouldn't get them if everyone agreed. You know, um, um, I don't Matthew. Do, do you know Matthew Syed? Um, Black box thinking. No, uh, I haven't. I haven't heard that one yet. Absolutely phenomenal book where he talks about um, all sorts of elements around design. But one of the things he talks about is is this. You know, the, the when you have homogeneity of thought, you know, things nearly always go wrong or okay. things don't work properly. You know, the and one of the examples he uses is around. Um, you know, there was a huge project in New York to come up with the first plane, uh, the first heavier than air vehicle, uh, which employed some of the best people in the world and engineers and scientists and all the rest of it. Um, but that couldn't make it, that didn't make it, that failed, you know, when two brothers in, in literally the middle of nowhere did, you know, sort of uh, 2,000 miles away in the centre of the country. <laughs> And, and, and that's kind of proof point, you know, they, 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 because they were all going, right, well, that's the idea we go with. Well, I agree with you. So we do that, even if the idea is wrong. And, and so, you know, creating that dissonance sometimes and, and allowing that diversity to be like properly realized is extremely important. I think recently on the podcast, we've had a few CEOs like yourself who are in emerging industries or industries that are going through rapid change and, and evolution of technology. Um, and I think it's always important to ask the question of, you know, if somebody's thinking of going into these emerging industries, what's something they should consider, maybe some skill set they should build? Um, because it, like you say, they're demanding such different skill sets and such very, uh, you know, varied people and, and attitudes towards work. Is there something you can do, though, to help yourself stand out for companies like yourself? So um, one of the things that we we would love to see more of is people who, you know, really understand the environment that they're coming into and that understanding is is doesn't you know it's not necessarily a degree or something like that but you know can be picked up through listening to the right podcast the right you know the right information just just sort of in being immersed in the environment I think is really important and looking looking for um, uh, how they fit in within that so you know, whether it's problem solving or whether it's organizational or whether it's, you know, the craft elements or, you know, the deep science or, or whatever it is, the, the, to, to have that view and understanding and to, to show, just to show the willing to be able to get under the skin of it, uh, I think is extremely important. Um, when you're, you know, if you're looking at, um, 
sort of delivering, you know, being part of it from a technical side, for 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 example. Yes, you know, a, a, a degree is is useful in a in a roughly um, uh, analogous space, but just as useful is is getting your hands dirty and making something. You know, all, most of our juniors uh, who have come on board, we've hired because they've done a project which is really interesting and you know they've explored interesting ideas and uh and they've tried to push the boat out in a in a in an interesting way um rather than the quality of their degree um because you know the degree is is a process that you go through whereas the the projects are nearly always a really real reflection of their capabilities and desires um Sorry. So what's what's sort of uh, the next five years look like for the small robot company? Where's uh, where's the company going? What's the aims? Um, so I think the the next year or so is very much around a transition to a company that's that's making its own cash. Um, you know, it's quite it's quite basic. Um, we have this capability on the on the data side, which allows us to be able to to, to find customers who who are willing to pay for what we do, um, and. For any startup, you know, you need to move to a point as fast as possible where you're generating revenue. Um, and that's, you know, it's extremely, it's extremely important. However, the vision, you know, but what we can provide and, and get people to pay for now is such a tiny fraction of the vision and such a tiny fraction of what we can achieve once, you know, we've, we've, we've sort of developed the infrastructure and the service in place to allow it to happen that you know once we got to that point that is almost giving us freedom to operate then to then go out and deliver the rest of the the service and the capability um ultimately what we want to do is you know be at the center of of, of a food ecosystem you know we would like it that the end consumer when they're buying a sandwich you know they look at a packet to see that the bread is made in a way which is sequestering carbon and um, um, you know, sort of uh, creating biodiversity and, you know, supporting the, the growth of rare sort of meadow plants in field and all that to be sort of tied together in a, in a, in a, a brand or an expression, which is something like robot grown, you know, where the robot grown is synonymous with an improving ecosystem, a, you know, a, a step towards um, uh, net zero. Um, and, you know, a confidence in the future where technology has done the right thing. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that is ultimately where we want to be from a consumer perspective. We want to be recognised, we want to provide value, we want people to say, I'm willing to pay 5p more for a sandwich for that to happen. Um, and we think that that's, that's very realistic. Um, from, a, from a technical perspective, you know, we would love it when you catch a train and you're going past fields um, and instead of seeing the sort of the mud, you know, with everything ploughed up and destroyed and, and uh, all these sort of like endless rows, the sort of the green desert rows of, of um, crops in field uh, with big tractors going across it, you see slightly scruffier fields, you know, which have different plants growing in there as well as the crop plant. And, you know, maybe there's sort of slight buzzing sound going on for what's going on. And instead of those big vehicles, you just see these, these little robots tootling about doing their job. And when you see them, you don't think anything of it. You know, that's just the way. That's just the way food's grown. Ultimately, that's where we want to be. Are you finding it a bit of a sort of hearts and minds battle at the moment to get farmers on board, or are you finding them uh, equally excited to embrace new technologies? 
No, I think that um, it's, there's, you know, there are very different mindsets in farmers um, and a lot of it is generational. Um, so I, I'll say older because it's, it's the easy line to draw, but, but, you know, older farmers tend to do what they've always done because they know that works. And if their environment is changing, if they're losing topsoil, if it doesn't work every year, then they're willing to put up with that because that's, you know, the, the, the change is, is, is difficult to take on board. Then you have farmers who are, you know, they just, they need to make it work, right? They're maybe they're farm managers or it's a smaller farm or whatever. And, and the, the bottom line is extremely important and it's all very well, you know, you see a lot of, of rich um, sort of estate owners and, uh, people going, oh, we're doing rewilding, we're doing all that stuff. It's like, well, that's that's fair enough, and it's really good that some people are doing that. But we still need to produce food, and those people who are producing food do still need to make a profit because they need to feed themselves. So you know, you, and you have that view, and and they, those people who really think like that, actually tend to be quite open-minded about how they can make sure they're generating the revenue they need to survive. But you've got to prove the point to them. And you've got to really show that show that they're the right people. And then you have people who just look at what's happening now and say, "This can't go on." Mm. And quite often, that's what we call transgenerational farmers. So young farm, young in inverted commas, so thirties, forties, who are taking on you know their um, their parents' farms or or their sort of new managers in the space, and they're, and they're taking on new farms and they're looking at it, and they've got the longest possible view, right? Longest term view. They're looking 20, 30, 40 years into the future because they're looking to see what their kids will inherit. Um, and ultimately, you know, a lot of them are looking at their farms at the moment going, this farm's not going to be around in that time. It's not going to exist. And so those people are looking for answers. And they're the people who we, we you know, we plug into most at a, at, a, at a sort of fundamental level. But, you know, the next point for us is to then prove the commercial play, um, uh, case. So the, the people who, you know, just, just want to make sure they're making a living sort of buy into it. And to be honest, the others, we can wait for them to retire. Um, <laughs> and, the way the, and the way it's working at the moment, so the, the way the government is changing the uh, um, farming subsidies thing is, is, is sort of working in our favour in that the, just being paid for owning land isn't good enough anymore. Mm. You know, you're, you now have to do things to earn your subsidies. You have to plant hedgerows or have um, strips where beetles can, can um, live or you have to you know, have wildflower borders or um, you have to do all this sort of stuff to get um, the new Elms Environmental Land Management Scheme um, money. Uh, and the farm, so the farmers that we're working with are adopting this wholesale and being really, really enthusiastic about it. But the farm, there are lots of farmers who are going, oh, this is just, this is so far beyond what I know that I'm not interested. Mm. And the government's actually looking to pay those farmers off and say, <laughs> well, if you don't want to do it anymore, then, you know, we will, we will pay for you to no longer farm. Um, and part of me is a bit aggrieved at the fact that you know we have to pay people who aren't doing their job very well to step away from the job they're not doing very well but part of me says well it's you know we need to do that as a, yeah. as a society we need to do that we need to bring on board the fresh blood we need to you know get people who are thinking in the right way about farming for the future well ben thank you so much for your time um i'm genuinely excited when i talk to people like you who are actually making impact and, and changing the world and affecting an industry that that needs change Thank you very much for inviting me, Daniel. Much appreciated. It's been an absolute delight coming on. Thank you for, for, for taking an interest in my ramblings. Uh, and <laughs> keep it up. I think, you know, what, what you're doing here is really important. It's important that people 
can can see and, and, and look at sort of potential changes in career or, or where they're going to go and, and and be you know really open-minded about where they're going thank you ben and where can people find you your company and what you're up to um so uh i'm uh on linkedin so just find uh, look for ben scott robinson and uh, i always reply um and um uh, on twitter uh, if you want to find us it's at small robot co uh or um myself i'm at bcsr um so yeah generally always up for a chat amazing thanks ben thank you daniel cheers bye-bye